Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. 25 years after Anglican missionary Julian Morton, the subject of the previous episode, left Newfoundland, along came to the northeastern coast another preacher whose parishes overlapped Morton's. James Lumsden's assignment was to minister to Wesleyans, later known as Methodists. Here, El Emmanuel tells of his nine years in eastern and northern Newfoundland. One of the more memorable of the 19th century visitors was Scottish-born James Lunston, who sailed into St. John's in September 1881 to be a missionary for the Wesleyan Church. After 11 years of work around Trinity, Northern Bonavista, and Notre Dame Bays, he retired to Nova Scotia, where in 1905 he wrote, The Skipper Parson on the Bays and Barrens of Newfoundland. A parson he certainly was, but a ship's captain never. He had to rely on others to ferry him from one settlement to the next. Despite the constant sermonizing, his tales say much about the economic conditions and social customs of his several parishes. I recall that in Lewisport, where I grew up, we always flew the Union Jack when something pleasant occurred in the family, a success, a visitor, or a birthday. I thought it a family custom until Lumsden set me right. He wrote, A pretty custom pertained generally throughout the island. Nearly every family had a flagstaff on its grounds, and flags were hoisted on national, local, or family celebrations. Flags were called into requisition to announce to the world such important events as a marriage, a birth, the arrival of a friend, and the like. Neighbor rejoiced with rejoicing friends, and when a death and funeral occurred, many flags at half-mast were the silent but eloquent witnesses of a sincere and general sympathy. Churches without a bell substituted a flag, and here's how that works. The flagstaff, which is a high one, stands in a conspicuous place near the church, and the flag can be seen by all. An hour before the service, the flag is hoisted to full mast. A quarter of an hour before the services, it's put at half-mast. And as the minister enters the church, it is taken down altogether. Lumsden noted that Brother Blundell of St. Jones Without in Trinity Bay, had neither bell nor flagstaff, so he would carry a horn, which he blew with such vigor that its reverberations echoed and re-echoed among the hills. The first strong blast signaled an hour in advance, and the next told the village that Brother Blundell was about to leave his house for the church, and they'd better follow immediately. As Parson Lumsden himself said, his knowledge of things in Newfoundland was often dearly bought. On his way by ship to his first mission to Northern Bight, on the shores of southwest arm of Random Sound, he encountered an ominous circumstance. I saw an old man, a passenger, drinking spirits. Despite this alert to danger ahead, shortly afterwards his ship was wrecked on Shag Rock. He and his fellow shipmates barely escaped with their lives, finally reaching shore in a cranky punt. Lumsden lost all his clothes, books, and papers, 
and when he arrived in Northern Bight he was taken in by an old lady who asked him if he had saved anything. Uh, "'Nothing beside what is in my head,' he replied, to which she, with kindly humor, commented, "'Well, I hope you got something in your heart, too.' Before long he was clothed with the best from local men's wardrobes, and later began to receive books from parsons all over Canada. I wonder how they heard about him from the place where he said, "'The isolation is terrible.' As an example, Lumsden recorded that one day a strange man, a railway surveyor, walked through random, and a little girl spied him through the window. "'Oh, mother!' she exclaimed. "'Who is that? He doesn't belong to this world!' But gradually the world did reveal itself, and James Lumsden played a part in opening it to the many hundreds of people along the coast. He was here, there, and everywhere, by punta rowing, under sail, and in winter by snowshoes made for him by local Mi'kmaq. Lumsden wrote, Wearing long leather boots, I took my first lesson walking with the light and graceful snowshoes. The snow caked up on the heel of my boot, my feet slipped, and down I sank in the snow. Up I got again and plunged headlong. Finally disgusted, I took them off and beat my way through the snow to Lee Bight. Once Lumsden tried them with a pair of moccasins, he was sold on snowshoes, especially with a pocket full of Hamburg bread to satisfy his hunger. This was hard bread which, when boiled and served with pork fat and salt fish, was a meal to nourish a strong and hardy race. The strong and hardy race had their housing problems. Dwellings in which many coastal people lived were pictured thus— he wrote, Entering a low door, you are as likely as not to stumble over a pig in the porch, to find frightened hens making desperate efforts to escape over your head, and when you enter the living room, your eyes smart with the smoke of green sticks smoldering on the open fireplace. Yes, they lived in tilts and ate Hamburg bread, but as Lumsden wrote, A remarkable hardiness, robust vigor of manhood and womanhood is common. Longevity is often the reward of the simple outdoor life. Once, near St. John's, he found an old man of nearly one hundred years lifting a huge sack of potatoes. "'Well, that's a heavy load for you,' the parson exclaimed. And the old man doffed his hat, scratched his head, and said, oh, "'I've just been wondering how it comes about that I can't lift it as easy I used to.' Forthwith, he raised the load and staggered off, leaving Lumsden open-mouthed. In Lumsden's time, the question of confederation with Canada was a burning issue. One old boy told Lumsden that if the Canadians came down around Northern Bight, he'd go for them with his swilin' gun. When asked why, he said in deep anger, "'Because they'll tax every pane of glass and make us all go as soldiers.' And when one Canadian did come around, a bookseller who carried a good and wholesome cookbook, one woman in sorrow proffered, "'You poor man, did you come all this way from Halifax "'thinking we don't know how to cook?' "'Parson Lumsden generally admired the people in his various parishes, "'especially if they were Methodists. "'He wrote that Newfoundlanders are often characterized "'by emotionalism in religion, but they're usually intelligent, "'and when a warm heart is wedded to a clear head, "'something very near perfection is found. "'This is the character of Newfoundland Methodism in the main.'" Of the adherents of other religions, he had little to say. Of course, Lumsden has a chapter on sealing, for everyone who wrote in those days was an authority on the hunting of seals and the hardships sealers faced. He described the arrival of one sealing steamer. 
A great strapping fellow jumped out from on deck to the wharf, and immediately on speaking with his friends burst into tears, sobbing like a child. He had come home empty-handed to a wife and twelve children, and to his old blind mother. Lumsden wrote about men shipwrecked and saved only to live out their lives as invalids. One such man was Joseph Kane of Norton's Cove near Wesleyville, bedridden for fifteen years, the result of exposure on the ice fields. From his bed near a window overlooking the sea, he would while away the time with a looking-glass, which he could manipulate to give a view of the entire harbour. One winter's day, when the bay was frozen over, he espied a dark shape just poking through the ice. He knew what it was, and shouting to his family, who, like everyone else, was at dinner, he begged them to hurry. Hurry! Not a moment to lose! For their beloved pastor was walking across to Norton's Cove when the ice gave way. He clung to the edge, but being a very heavy man, he couldn't crawl out. He was about at the end of his tether when the villagers arrived with ropes and poles, and with much difficulty extricated him. Joseph Kane could never get over the wonder of his looking out at precisely the right moment. Later, Lumsden went to Notre Dame Bay to more sophisticated and populous places, including Little Bay, with more than 2,000 residents, some of whom lived in pretty little houses in a place called The Park. Here they created an orchestra of twelve instruments and entertained the public with monthly musical and literary meetings. The rest of the people worked in the copper mine, where, as Lumsden described, the men formed a dismal procession coming out of the pit, their clothes wet with mire, a candle sticking in their caps. Working in the pit or half-stripped before a roaring furnace ladling the molten ore, shoveling all day amid sulfurous smoke, they were all sons of toil. Farther along the shore he came to Hall's Bay, its lonely solitude unbroken by any sound except the shrill call of a bird or the low murmur of water. He wrote, Here the rocky battlements were high above the water and are broken into deep fissures, a miniature harbour, a deep cavern. Away on the other side the land slopes gently to the water, as if in friendly communion, and in a long stretch of unbroken coastline is but one little bit of a clearing with its tilled fields and curling smoke. Lumsden found here a tiny settlement, a dozen houses, a school chapel, and a little sawmill by the brook. The reason I'm telling you this is to set the scene that has haunted me from the moment I first read it. In one of the tiny houses, a lone woman greeted him in the familiar accent of his native Scotland. His outspoken astonishment opened her heart, and she told him her story. In Glasgow, she said, she'd been content until poor health led her doctor to suggest a sea voyage. A friend got her a passage on a ship to America, which put in the St. John's. Someone there offered her a fine job as a housekeeper, and she stayed. Not for long, she hastened to add, because she intended to return home as soon as she felt better. But the years slipped by, and before long she got married, and then, for a reason she did not tell, she and her husband came to this isolated settlement in Hall's Bay. He was away all day, she was alone, and her heart was sore heavy, for she was city-bred and used to much to do. And Lumsden says, 
Her face, though marked with sadness and heart hunger, showed unmistakable traces of refinement, and the story she told with inimitable pathos and sweetness, especially as I glanced around the bare and cheerless room, void of even the music of a child's voice, made a strong appeal to my sympathies, as it does to mine. And I keep wondering who she was, and what became of her. What mark did she leave on her village? Lumsden closes the Skipper Parson, with the hope that reading it will stimulate an interest in home missions. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm grateful for his delightful word pictures of the old ways and old days of our people in Newfoundland. And to honor him a few years after his death in 1913, the community of Cat Harbor was renamed Lumsden. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, Ella tells of an extraordinary medical man assigned to Fortune Bay, Dr. Conrad Fitzgerald.